Hello and welcome to this special interview with author and farmer Alice Percy. This episode is part of our Women of the Land series with Chelsea Green Publishing. The Women of the Land series shares the voices of women who are fueled by their connection with the land to build businesses, garner movements and share their stories. They're standing up for what they know works and crafting a better future for us all. raised sheep briefly they drove me insane they were so they were skittish i've met very nice sheep but in generally they they weren't very personable pigs are highly individual um they're very intelligent and they will um i think there was a quote from um, gk chesterton the um, british christian apologist who said that a cat will look down on you, a dog will look up to you, and a pig will look you straight in the eye. Um, and that's very true. They like Pigs like to hang out. Um, and if you have a group of pigs, um, they don't act as a unit the way sheep or cattle will. Um, they're very independent animals. Um, and so I, I respect that about them. I think it makes them more fun to, to handle um, and spend time with. I don't, they're very easy to have a conversation with. Um, you can uh, talk to them about where they're going or what they're eating or what they're looking for. Um, pigs are so curious. They're always uh, they're always looking for, looking around for something and exploring their environment. So just like a, a child, you can it's kind of fun to talk to them about what they're seeing and what they're finding. In her new book, Happy Pigs Taste Better, published by Chelsea Green Publishing, Alice draws on a decade of experience raising pigs on pasture in Maine, the most northeasterly state in the USA. A land of long and cold winters, beautifully hot summers. It's not the first place you would look to set up an outdoor pig farm, but that's exactly what Alice and her partner did straight out of university in 2005. There was many an up and down, lots to be learned along the way, but luckily Alice has pulled it all together and her book is the first of its kind to bring you an in-depth guide to organic, high-welfare pig farming on both smaller and larger scales. We love how comprehensive Alice's book is, covering every aspect of raising pigs on pasture, from swine midwifery to humane butchering and everything in between. In this interview, Abby sits down with Alice to talk about how pigs raised on pasture are different to intensively reared ones and how to utilize their rooting instinct as part of a holistic system. And the joy of new piglets. Maybe we could go through a few of the things you cover in your book, um, because obviously some of your research is really helpful and informative to people wanting to raise their own pigs. Um, so I think it was really interesting to hear how the physiology of domesticated pigs has changed um, and, and how maybe you could tell us a bit about how a pasture-raised pig is different to one that's bred intensively. When any organism is bred to grow and reproduce in a highly controlled environment, then you can push certain traits to a further extent than you could otherwise. And so when you have these animals that are bred within these systems where the temperature is controlled, the moisture is controlled, the nutrition is controlled down to the microgram, 
then you can push growth rates and, um, and, and lean growth rates specifically much harder than you can when you're breeding animals that have jobs besides just growing and reproducing to the maximum extent. Uh, right. When you're raising your animals on pasture, they have to be able to cope with fluctuating temperatures. They have to cope with, um, you know, maybe less controlled moisture conditions. Um, and if they part of their diet is grass or, um, you know, table scraps, um, restaurant waste, um, anything like that, where you don't really necessarily know down to the nth percentile exactly what they're eating, um, uh -huh. then you are going to be making some sacrifices in growth rate. Um, you see behavioral differences, um, animals that are bred to um, thrive on pasture will have, um, they'll be active, they'll have a strong foraging instinct. Uh, whereas in a confinement facility, um, activity is not desirable. That means you've got animals jostling into each other. You increase the risk of aggression. The animals uh -huh. are um, burning energy that could otherwise go into lean growth. Um, and there's just absolutely no need for them to forage. All of their nutritional needs are being you know, pumped through an auger and directly into a bin. So it doesn't do you any good for them to know how to root for their own food. And do you have a, I mean, like, obviously, um, you've probably tried out a few different breeds in your time. And what, you know, do you have a favorite breed? And maybe you could explain a little bit, bit about why and their characteristics. My actually my strong preference is for crossbred animals. Um, partly that is, you know, quite honestly, maybe the, the main reason for that is I like looking at them. Um, <laughs> I love having a variegated herd that has, you know, different colors, different patterns, um, different different faces. That's just um, it, it increased my pleasure in farming to um, to have those a, a diverse looking herd of, of hogs. The practical side of that too is that um, is hybrid vigor, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, you get you have the advantage of um, taking the good aspects from multiple breeds and combining them into single animals, um, creating a herd that functions well in your area and under your management techniques. Um, you know, right. like the Gloucestershire Old Spot was originally bred to thrive in southern England in apple orchards. So if you are in Maine and Pine Forest, a purebred Gloucestershire Old Spot is probably, you know, they might do great, but they are probably not going to be optimized to your environment. That being mm -hmm. said, I have kept a number of purebred animals and um, I would say my favorite purebreds were the large blacks. Um, they're just really sweet tempered animals. Um, really good mothers, very calm, um, and while there's a there's a lot of strains of large black, so this isn't true of all of them, um, but some strains of large black are among the most efficient of the heritage breeds. Um, so okay. when you're trying to actually make money at it, that's always a, a good thing. So I was wondering if we could maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, the idea of pastured pigs. Um, it's obviously, it, you know, conventionally people, well, certainly today, most pigs are not raised on pasture. And it seems to be somewhat of a dying art. Um, and 
with a, you know, with a renewed interest that just comes in the last five years or so. Um, so maybe you could explain a bit about what pastured pigs means um, and some of the challenges and some of the advantages and some of the good experiences. One thing that I hammer in over and over in my book, um, because I had to hammer it into my customers over and over, was that pasture-raised pigs are not grass-fed pigs. And I think that a lot of the interest on the consumer end in, in pasture-raised pigs was an outgrowth of the growing interest in grass-fed beef. Um, uh -huh. And it's an it's really they're they're literally entirely different animals um so to speak um and so while i think there are distinct advantages in raising pigs on pasture it does not imply a wildly different diet in most cases than what they would be eating if they were um, confined to a barn or um, to a barn with a paved heavy use area. Because pigs have stomachs uh, like humans, um, much, much very close to humans to the extent that they're used as models for medical studies before things pass on to human testing. Uh, whereas a cow is a ruminant that is designed to eat grass. Um, a pig in the wild is certainly nibbling on grass, but they're mostly rooting under the ground and looking for roots. They're looking for bugs. They're scavenging carcasses um, and they're eating eggs. They're eating little baby animals. Um, you know, they require um, energy rich, protein rich feed. So if you try to feed a, a pig on grass and hay, they will starve to death. The advantage of raising them on pasture is that they enjoy being out there. It's a difficult thing to prove, but um, it is it is wonderful to watch a, a healthy herd of pigs out on clean pasture. They just it gives them an it gives them an opportunity to exercise their um, their natural instincts of roaming and rooting and foraging, um, and it just lets them be pigs to a to a much fuller extent than being locked up inside gives them a more varied diet, which has a strong effect on the flavor of the pork. You know, m many consumers, um, including myself, think it's it's better. It's more interesting. Um, pigs, to a large extent, the the flavor of pork reflects the diet of the animals. Um, more so, I would say, than in um, beef or lamb. For example, most of the um, the fatty acids that they eat are reflected very strongly in the fatty acid profile of the, the fat in the finished animal. And, and you can identify the differences in flavor between corn-fed pork and barley-fed pork and pork that's been heavily ranged. And um, maybe you could just tell us, because you said that, you know, it allows them to really uh, express their behaviors more being out in pasture. I don't know if you have any stories or memories of particular occasions that made you um, Giggle? My favorite part of the year was always when um, the pigs went out on pasture for the first time in the spring. Um, and it was it was so much fun letting them out of the trailer and they'd step out and see fresh clover and be like, ooh, what's this? Oh, this is cool. And they knew instantly what to do. They're just like, oh, oh, I'm going to stick my nose in that. <laughs> um, and other times we had um, some, you know, old field areas that were growing it was like old grass and scrubby little trees and we wanted to clean those up and so we used the pigs to help out with that 
and I remember one area that the um, the underbrush was so high. I think we erected a, a new pasture in August when all the vegetative growth was as high as it could possibly be. And um, I went out to the, and we put some sows out there, a sow who was about to farrow. And I went out there and I thought she had escaped. And then I looked closer and she was just hiding in this patch of goldenrod that was so high that you could just barely see her spine among all the yellow flowers. Uh, wow. <laughs> Obviously, you talked a lot about that the pigs like the rooting and digging down and in a, they're a form of cultivator in a way. Um, and so may, obviously there's this huge push and drive towards soil health and building soil health on farms at the moment. Again, it's very different from um, grass-fed cows that as they graze um, in a well-managed system, they are actively improving the soil quality. Um, they're encouraging underground root growth. They're trampling dead organic matter into the soil. Um, you know, I, I can't say that pigs have as positive an effect on soil health as pastured animals. Um, I have some skepticism about the push in organic agriculture circles right now to avoid tillage entirely um, because uh -huh. most of the plants that we grow for food are um, their annuals um, and in, in vegetable systems, they're mostly broadleaf annuals. And uh -huh. um, one thing that I learned in, in college in my environmental studies um, classes is that, um, I don't know if you've heard of the concept of ecological succession and the types of plants that, um, that tend to take over at various stages of ecological succession, but it is natural for mm -hmm. there to be disturbance events like wildfires. Um, right. And uh, that's the, the major example. Um, after a disturbance event, the plants that dominate are annuals and especially broadleaf annuals. And after time has gone by without further disturbance, what tends to take over next is perennial grasses and then shrubs and then deciduous trees. And so to my mind, it's not honoring the way nature actually works for us to try to grow broadleaf annuals without a disturbance event. Um, right. I think that there's, you can justify pushing our food system toward using more perennial crops. Um, uh -huh. But the reality is right now that we like to eat broccoli, we like to eat soybeans, um, and those f grow best when there has been soil disturbance. Um, and so that's why right. I liked to use, um, you know, to me, it, it was a holistic system to use the animals to create that soil disturbance and then take advantage of that to grow a thriving crop of annuals um, and and do that repeatedly. And, and I've seen there was a, a farm, there, there was a case study locally, but this happens repeatedly, um, that people trying to avoid the natural tendency of pigs to disturb the soil want to put nose rings on them and prevent them from rooting. And 
that just, to me, that violates the organic principle of allowing animals to exercise their natural instincts. Nose rings are very painful to pigs. They're trying to um, do what comes naturally to them. They're trying to root under the soil and they are met with a pain stimulus in response. So to me, that's like putting a nail in somebody's shoe to keep them from walking um, rather than trying to prevent the animals from doing what they want to do. We should be making sure that we are um, not overstocking our land, that we're being responsible about nutrient buildup in the soil, um, that we're paying attention to um, erosion potential and um, proximity to water bodies. Um, you know, there, there's ways to mitigate the potential ill effects of hogs on grass without um, subverting what they naturally want to do. I wonder how much, it sounds like you really used your pigs um, as part of a system um, and how much should people value like the other uh, ecosystem services that the pigs provide or you know, how much did that kind of come up in your farm? When we first established our rotation system with the pigs and the horticultural crops, um, I was growing a really broad variety of vegetables and, you know, in any given week I had to remember to thin the onions and harvest the spinach and plant the pumpkins and it just became a logistical nightmare for me. And so eventually I ended up um, settling on just one crop, which was day-neutral strawberries. Um, they were very profitable for me. Um, they did really well in that rotation. Um, and it just simplified life a lot. Um, and because it was a long rotation, I didn't really have to worry about growing just, you know, I had like one animal and one vegetable um, and years that, you know, it was a four-year rotation. So we would um, pasture the pigs, and then the next year you'd grow a cover crop on that land and that could be you know just about anything really um and then the next year you'd plant your um the day neutral strawberries and those are just a single year crop and then the next year you'd um, plant that ground back to pasture crops and just let them fallow and establish for the season so the pigs could go back on it next year um, and so there were, you know, basically two on years where the land was growing something productive. Some years it was an animal and some years it was a plant. And uh -huh. then two years where it got to, um, to rest and resuscitate and, and just grow plant roots. If you were to give one piece of advice to a new farmer, interest in raising pigs, um, where would you start? Learn how to run a business. Um, it's a business and marketing skills. The marketing skills aren't necessary to running a farm business, depending on how you approach it. Um, but there are a lot of ambitious beginning farmers who are very excited about the, um, the agricultural principles. Um, but if they don't know how to um, run a profit and loss statement and they don't know how to calculate their expenses accurately, they're doomed uh -huh. from the start. People who are starting out tend not to value their time, um, yes. which is easy to ignore when you're um, experimenting on a small scale and then it becomes um, just absolutely exhausting as you try to scale up. Um, and you, once your farm becomes full time, you realize 
it, it just becomes crystal clear that you're not making minimum wage. Um, right. You don't mind doing something for free when you do it two hours a week, a week, but when you're doing it 12 hours a day, you can't do it for free anymore. Um, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's my unromantic advice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good advice. My, my other advice to, um, to people wishing to farm is to stay focused um there you know there's another tendency and i certainly fell into this trap of wanting to do everything and be as diversified as possible um and diversity in agriculture is extremely important it's a real shame that so much of our farmland is taken up with this tiny handful of crops um and we should be encouraging people to grow different types of plants, different types of animals. Um, but that doesn't mean that it all has to happen on your farm. It's different. Farming is hard. It's difficult enough to raise pigs well, um, without trying to raise wheat and broccoli well at the same time. Um, and if your farm is struggling, you'd be better advised to learn how to do one thing better than to branch out in a million different directions and get stretch too thin. The overall agricultural landscape can still be diverse if, you know, you're raising pigs and your neighbor's raising high bush blueberries. Um, a young farmer should never feel like they have to do everything themselves. You know, there, there's a middle ground between growing 4,000 acres of corn and growing, you know, 200 different types of crops uh, and three different kinds of livestock. Okay. And um, we always like to ask, you know, many of our listeners are other smaller scale farmers. Um, and so do you have a message you want to share with the smaller scale farming community? Keep fighting the good fight. It's a, uh, it's definitely a tough climate to be trying to make a living, um, growing food in an alternative way. Um, but I think that, um, people who care about their food have our backs and those people are growing as a population. Um, so it's a conversation that, we have to keep going. Um, it's, uh, some people fear it's only been a trend, and I, I think it's much more than that. Um, but it's, it's a conversation that we have to keep having to, to keep people aware and concerned and um, ready to vote the right way with their dollar. What is the most exciting and fun part of raising pigs? New piglets are the best. Um, I, I love, that was, I had a lot more fun with pigs after we started raising our own breed stock, um, instead of buying piglets and just raising them out to slaughter. Like, new piglets are, you know, they weigh about two pounds and they feel like little footballs. Um, and they're just unbearably adorable and, um, and really exciting. Like, they're... They're always risky, like farrowing can go very wrong, especially in cold weather. Um, you often lose a few in the first few days, and so there's this like tension around a new litter of like, is this one going to go well? How many are going to survive? Is the, if it's a new mother, is she going to be a good mother? Um, and when they get past that three-day mark, you can be relatively assured that they're going to make it. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun to, to watch and be around. It's brilliant to hear from Alice about rearing pigs outdoors, as the huge majority of pigs in the UK are reared indoors for their whole life. As I travel around the UK countryside, I often pass shed after shed of indoor pig rearing units. 
They're concrete jungles that may seem efficient on a purely financial profit and loss, but they really don't add up in a more agroecological future for farming. Thankfully, Alice offers a practical and soulful alternative. She recognizes the importance of creativity and fullness in a pig's life, yet she doesn't deny the need for her farm to be a profitable business, and that ultimately she kills the animals she rears, and then eats them. This Farmarama podcast is brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing, the leading publisher of books on sustainable food and farming, including Happy Pigs Taste Better by Alice Percy. Contact your local bookshop or favourite online retailer or go to chelseagreen.com for more details. This show was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and Hannah Sutherland. Community support is by Annie Landless, Olivia Oldham and Eliza Jenkins. And thanks too to the pigs of Forest Colpit Farm in the Brecon Beacons.